Friends, our scripture reading today is actually one half of one verse, which you won't get very often from me, but it is the Gospel of John, chapter 28, verse 38a. Pilate asked him, what is truth? Friends, let us pray. Gracious God, as we reflect on this word, may our hearts be open, our minds be sharp, our ears be peaked to hear what you would have to tell us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as I mentioned, we're in week three of four weeks around questions from the outside. What are questions that people who are not regularly attending church, remember we had that statistic in week one that almost 72% of our area, our, our community, um, don't have regular church involvement. So why? And so often we think we've got all the answers. So we thought maybe let's take a few weeks and actually listen to what those folks are asking us and let's try to wrestle with it. So this week we're asking ourselves to respond to the question, what if I don't believe? And I want to start with this by saying that we're going right to this guy, Pilate. Now, i got to be honest with you. The more I think about Pilate, the more I think he gets a bad rap in about everything that we hear. Now, I get it, right? He was the instigator. He was the one who facilitated the flogging of Jesus, who convicted him, and of course, then we go to the cross. But I think Pilate does deserve a little bit of rehabilitation in our commentaries and in our minds, because when we read this text most of the time, and you know, I spent a little bit of Easter tide talking about this, we focus so much on Jesus, but yet there's so many characters around Jesus in the Passion narrative and during Holy Week that we don't give a lot of attention to. And Pilate is another character that we tend to pass from garden to cross to tomb. We just say, well, he's a part of it. But in one way, as I thought about this this week, I kind of feel bad for the guy. Because somehow, here's this governor who's overseeing the Holy Lands, and he seems to have to get in the middle and referee what looks like an internal struggle between a sect of Judaism. And it has now overflowed into the Roman bureaucracy. Like, I'm sure Pilate did not wake up one morning and is like, you know what I really want to do? I want to deal with all of this stuff, right? You're not excited about having to referee some sort of internal religious conflict, especially if you're not really part of it. Here he has Jesus, who has been thrown in front of him, who from Pilate's point of view seems to not have any good reason to be punished in the ways that the crowds and the priests have demanded. Yet when he hears Jesus, and you know, if you go back to John 18, you get to hear this dialogue, it also seems that he doesn't quite fully understand what Jesus is saying either. And he even admits as much to say, listen, I'm, I'm not a Jew after all. How do I understand this whole king and not king kind of thing? He doesn't have the cultural translation ready at hand to easily connect what those who are accusing Jesus are saying and what he has to do as the referee. 
And as the conversation continues between Jesus and Pilate and the crowds, the people who rebel against the apparent king, that meaning Jesus, hook Pilate into a political and honestly existential bind. If you let Jesus free, says the crowds, you are no friend of the emperor. You aren't doing your job well, Pilate. You're actually kind of a bad person then, the crowds are demanding. Now, this lack of friendship of the emperor does have its implications. Antiquity tells us that Pilate's boss was a little paranoid and oftentimes would put to death those who worked for him just simply because they knew too much about him. So for Pilate to start to hear things like, well, you know what, you are not a very good representative of the Roman government if you don't put Jesus to death. Well, that's just not a, well, you know, we got your job performance and you're kind of needing some improvement. It's like, if you don't do this, you know who your boss is, right? You know what he does to people who he doesn't like, right? So Pilate does what most any of us would do when faced with a political existential issue in which you don't really have much at stake in, Pilate literally washes his hands of the situation and says, I'm out. I'm not terribly interested in being involved. But even still, in the midst of all of this pressure, he, for a moment, asks a deeply profound question to Jesus. What is truth? And this question sort of hits you sideways as you hear the back and forth, the roaring of the crowd, this back and forth about who's a king and who's not a king. And, you know, if I really was a king, don't you think people would be coming to save me? Pilate asks, what is truth? Now, this is a question that different scholars will argue is somewhere in between skepticism or mocking or some sort of indulgent pity in tone. And to that response, to that question, comes a response of silence from Jesus. Jesus doesn't answer the question, what is truth? Instead, it motivates Pilate to, in essence, lift up his eyes and go a new direction. He turns again to the crowds afterwards in John 18, as you read that story. And now the crowds press in further on Pilate. After asking the question, what is truth? That's when the crowds say, well, if you don't put Jesus to death, you are no friend of the emperor's. It seems the crowds are willing to provide him a certain answer to that truth. One that was foisted upon him, whether he agreed or not, for his own safety. So what if Pilate's question, again, let's rehabilitate Pilate this Sunday, what if Pilate's question was not one of mocking or one of an indulgent pity, but one of honest curiosity, I mean, whether we say that out loud, whether we say what is truth, 
I think we ask that question all the time. Every time we open a newspaper, every time we hear about something else going on, every time we're forced into this cultural cognitive dissonance where we say, especially on a Sunday like this, as tomorrow we'll celebrate once again this great nation's birthday and we see what's going on, we might ask ourselves once again, what is truth? And if we're asking that question here, I imagine that there are a lot of folks this morning sitting on the outside of this church or sitting on the outside not watching this stream and are asking the same exact question, what is truth, especially if they are in a phase of deconstruction, tearing apart their faith because the previous answers don't make as much sense as they used to. Now, this came into sharp relief for me this week. Now, I had planned on preaching this question for about a month now and have been wrestling with it, but this week, about six hours from now, last week, I got a call from WJCT, one of the uh, assistant producers. They're like, we got your name from somebody. Would you be willing to come into the studio and get on First Coast Connect and talk about the implications after the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Now listen, I, this has been a dream of mine to be on NPR, but I would have picked a much less controversial issue to wade into the waters of the airwaves in Jacksonville than this one. But still, I mean, I've listened to NBR, NPR like since I've like been four, so to be on NPR, well, that's a dream of mine. So of course I said yes. And there were about six of us. It was a panel where it's like you got 30 seconds to talk, so you better be ready. Of course, there were pastors from different traditions, different perspectives who were all giving their opinion and their thought about what are the implications. And if you're curious still, you can go online and listen to it. And while the conversation was civil, I could hear some underlying warring words from some of my colleagues. And if you've listened to it, you'll know there is a bit of that. There were churches last week, after the Dobbs decision was handed down, that proudly celebrated the defeat of Roe versus Wade. One of our nearby churches actually changed their worship in order to celebrate. And we're so proud of the fact that for five minutes, the congregation stood up in applause. And to hear some of my fellow clergy to believe anything other than that was to seed, and this was like literal quote, was to seed into wickedness. This was a battle to those folks, and they apparently had won. And what bothered me on Monday, and of course the days afterwards, was less about their perspective on the whole issue of abortion. It, really, truly, the issue of abortion hardly came up if you listened to the whole hour or so that we talked. That wasn't really what people were talking about. Good people, and even in this church, because I've talked to people on both sides of this issue that have deeply thoughtful convictions 
on either side. Things that I had never even thought about. It was great to have those dialogues with many of you. People can have varying opinions on this issue, but it was the veracity in which those lines were drawn by some of my clergy colleagues. And the fact that if you disagreed with that perspective, then not only did you not understand Jesus, because one of the panelists said that only people with common sense could come to this conclusion. But if you disagreed with those who stood up and gave applause that, oh my gosh, this Supreme Court decision was handed down, then not only were you giving into wickedness, but you were also victimizing women and children. Well, listen, I've got a seven-year-old and a, five, a six-year-old at home. Like, I'm a pretty patient man now. But after about 25 minutes of this, I, I, I lost a little bit of my patience. Of course, I'm already nervous because I'm thinking I'm representing South Jacksonville Presbyterian Church and all its varying opinions, and I'm representing the PCUSA, right? Because I'm the only Presbyterian on there. It's a lot of pressure on a guy who has only been there about 18 months. But it got to a point where I felt like I needed to, as someone who didn't really want to talk about wickedness and all of that kind of stuff, but wanted to show that it's deeply important for such tender, difficult decisions that someone might make to keep avenues of love and grace and to avoid criminalizing people, that I had to say out loud on the radio that I was a Christian as well, and that I also was an ordained minister of the gospel. Even if I didn't see things the same way that some of my colleagues did. Never mind, and I hope some folks hear this pretty well, Never mind the fact that changing a service to celebrate a Supreme Court decision moves a little too far for me to a political service and a worship service than any church in America should ever get to. I will promise you, dear friends, that there will never be a time, I don't care what the decision is, we will not change worship, the worship of Jesus Christ our Savior, to celebrate or to bemoan any kind of Supreme Court decision. There is a reason why there's separation of church and state. If we wonder why folks struggle to believe, then we might only need to think about what we are doing as churches to create situations where we put people on the outside into such untenable positions that they wish to wash their hands of the whole enterprise altogether. For someone who might feel like a pilot in this world, listening to us on Sunday, I mean on Monday, there might have been a group of folks that said, I ain't getting involved in any of this. And they probably would have had good reason to feel that way. Because here's the thing, in my limited experience as a human being and my limited experience as a pastor, I found that accusing varying opinions about complicated topics as quote-unquote wicked tends to limit meaningful discussion. And that includes people who have a committed, loving relationship with the church and with Jesus Christ. 
I'm telling you, if I started on every Sunday telling y'all you're wicked, uh, see? It doesn't work terribly well to foster good relationship. It certainly is not the thing that would get me to go to church, except perhaps if I thought salvation was somehow related to Stockholm Syndrome. And by being held hostage and being told that I was wicked, then perhaps that would be enough to keep me bare. But you know what? That doesn't do well when you need help on a Sunday morning or a Sunday afternoon. Being held hostage in your salvation is not quite the way to go. And that's just talking about the folks who do show up. I mean, God bless you for coming on the 4th of July weekend. But with those who are not in a pew today, who do not see this place as a place to call home, who have lots of reasons to believe that this place is suspect, what other option are they left with but to wash their hands and walk away, especially if they don't want to conform exactly to what the crowd is yelling? So what could be different? How could we be a place that's a little different for folks that are asking this question, what if I don't believe? What do we do with our pilots who are on the outside? Well, I think sometimes there is a value in untangling the political and the theological. When Pilate pushes Jesus on being a king and Jesus speaks that he is not a king of this world, he's letting Pilate know that the avenues of this world that he is trying to work through are not political, but are actually something deeper. Now, don't get me wrong. It's good that we as a church can wrestle with big topics. But if you were with us when we had this discussion over a month ago about abortion, we didn't talk a whole lot about abortion. We talked about the deeper issues We talked about grace and love and forgiveness and understanding and the complications of this world and how it's important to walk beside people in their most complicated and difficult moments. Again, if you listen to the radio conversation on Monday, what you'll hear from a couple of us is not, well, abortion is X, Y, and Z. We didn't really talk much about how we felt about Roe versus Wade. But instead, what we talked about is that God loves everyone, that there is no judgment for people's stories. And I made it a point very overtly to say South Jacksonville Presbyterian Church is a place where one will never felt shame or embarrassment because of the story of their journey. It would mean I'd be awful hypocritical as I pour those waters of baptism and saying, it doesn't matter where you've been, where you are, or where you're going. You are loved by a God deeply. That God, turns out, loves people who have had abortions. This should not be shocking for anybody who reads the Bible for more than 30 seconds. It's also true that God loves people who chose not to have abortions and instead kept their children to term. Again, not a big shock for folks who have read the Bible for any period of time. If we can start with these deeper themes of love and grace and forgiveness and journeying with, 
we can build a foundation of mutual love and appreciation. We understand complexity and nuance better than this is bad. And if you disagree, well, then you are no good friend of the emperor. And you know what the consequences are of not being a good friend to the emperor. Because, friends, if we are creating a church that emphasizes the political over the gospel, then we're not worshiping Jesus Christ, are we? We're worshiping whatever government places us and our beliefs into the greatest power. And I will tell you, people will sniff that out much faster than we realize. I think the other thing we can do a little bit better for those folks who are asking, what if I don't believe? is talk about the truths we do know. Because in the midst of many directions and many roads, there are still some truths that we can hold on to, even here. In this moment in John 18, Jesus Christ will still always be resurrected. Love will always prevail, even when posing what is true. That the gospel from the beginning was always a gospel of redemption over power. That is always true. And moreover, there is a real truth that we are broken, finite people. I will never know what it is like to wrestle with the question of abortion. I am finite and imperfect. And what arrogance must it be to believe I have such assurance that I claim something I do not know as wicked? As imperfect broken people, we are required to have just enough of a degree of humility to look at what we know and say, I can't know all of it. But you know what I'll do? I'll walk with you. I'll walk beside you. I won't make you feel bad about the journey you've taken because it's different from the journey I've taken. wonder what that would be like for somebody who sits on the outside desperately wondering if there was somebody who loved them who was hungry to feel grace I'd like to think it might be the smallest seed of belief for someone who believed that they would never believe again Let's be those folks, dear friends. Let's not push people into crowds. Let's not claim that folks are not good to the emperor simply because they don't believe what we believe. Because I'm fairly convinced that the resurrected Jesus will find us in that journey. So we walk with people towards belief.
Thanks be to God.